Nowadays, it's seen as the epitome of unhealthiness. But lard, the rendered fat of a pig, has been a critical food throughout human history. We're using it in a couple of different ways today, as a component of pie dough and as a medium for deep frying. From KVBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. As with all things surrounding early humans, there is some controversy over when and where exactly domestication of various animals occurred. There's some evidence to suggest that the pig was domesticated in the mountains of Central Asia some 8,000 years ago, trailing only dogs as humanity's oldest animal partner. The wild boar had definitely been tamed by 4,000 BC in China. Despite its deserved reputation for ferocity, the hog was extremely interested in the garbage people left behind, and when raised from birth, it turned out to be quite docile. It helped that you could turn a pig into all sorts of things, especially something, fat, that was in short supply the further north you went. Away from olive trees and coconuts and palms, the principal vegetable oils of Eurasia and Africa. We now think of fat as purely food, but for thousands of years it was equally valuable for making soap and for food preservation. Pigs were a low-maintenance way to manufacture fat. They'd mostly take care of themselves foraging in the woods or eating trash from human settlements. And they came with the bonus of plenty of tasty meat, which got even better with a good dose of salt and some aging. Once domesticated, wherever humans went, pigs followed. They quickly colonized the Pacific Islands and took very little time from their introduction by Columbus on his 1493 voyage to spread through the Americas. About the only places the pig failed to find a foothold were the arid regions of North Africa and the Middle East where goats and sheep did better, and eventually Judaism and Islam's influence kept them mostly sidelined, and the far north, where the season was too short and the winters too long for them to thrive. It wasn't until the middle part of the 20th century that lard lost its important place in American cookery. For most of American history, it was the dominant cooking fat in many places, at least as popular as butter. Innovations in refining techniques during the 19th century, though, suddenly made it much cheaper to get cooking fat from other sources. Cottonseed, rapeseed, soybeans, corn. And the discovery of hydrogenation enabled these oils to be turned into a solid fat that, as margarine, could replace butter, or as shortening, could replace lard. The fascination with shiny new technology coupled with heavy advertising meant that butter and lard were quickly tagged as unhealthy poverty food. And coming out of the Depression, nobody wanted to be caught eating unhealthy poverty food. So Crisco and margarine it was, at least until further study muddied the waters on whether lard was worse than shortening after all. We don't wade into nutritional controversies on this show except to maintain that most food is perfectly fine to eat in moderation. But something really was lost when lard was tossed out for hydrogenated vegetable shortening. 
Especially for cold or room temperature food, lard's melting point, which is just about human body temperature, means that it gives food made with it or fried in it a silky mouthfeel. Vegetable shortening, which stays solid a good 15 or 20 degrees higher than lard, often gives these foods a chalky or waxy texture once they're cooled. Vegetable oil can be tricky to work with and can easily turn greasy, and butter is more temperamental than lard, especially as it starts to warm up. Lard is just about as good as it gets as a pastry shortening and is certainly a top three frying oil as well, as long as you don't buy the bricks on grocery store shelves, which are hydrogenated to improve shelf life. If you make it yourself, though, or get it from someone who does and keep it covered up in the refrigerator, you've got yourself a top-tier cooking fat, often at not much more cost than the time it takes to render. Well, the fireweed leaves are now pretty red. Birch is turning yellow, I think. I think this summer's pretty much done, which means starting to think about uh, winter cooking. Winter cooking is kind of a different game, you know? Summer's all about lightness and freshness and fish, bright flavors, smaller, less filling meals. But winter is, we get a little heavier, <laughs> not just physically, but the meals get a little richer, a little more substantial. It's just kind of a thing, you know, it happens. It's sort of like sort of like how it's right around the middle of September that I start thinking about switching from gin to whiskey. This is also the time when I quit thinking about grilling, quit thinking about salads and delicacy and all that. And I just start thinking about wanting to eat substantial. Start thinking about stews. Start thinking about gumbo. Start thinking about soup, hearty soup, braises, stuff like that. Definitely on my radar. So when I was thinking about what to do for this show, it really felt like it was time to start shifting into fall. So we're gonna do that. We're gonna make a chicken pot pie, which was always, you know, <laughs> was always kind of a go-to when I was younger. Didn't know anything about cooking. Didn't have any patience. Didn't have, <laughs> didn't have very much money. Because for, you know, 99 cents or whatever, you go down to the frozen aisle at the grocery store and get a chicken pot pie. Pop it in the, well, you know, back in those days, this is the microwave. Although, you know, if you were patient, you could certainly do it in the oven. And it was better. It was for sure better. But mostly it was just hot. And it was tasty enough. But I think the chicken pot pie has kind of, kind of suffered from that. Because now, <laughs> when we mention it, that's the first thing we think of, is the frozen chicken pot pie. Because it's how most of us have encountered the thing most of our lives. But the chicken pot pie is a real and great American dish. So we're going to make a real one. This is kind of one of those, one of those dishes where we really see the, uh, the English influence on the U.S. Because... As much as people make fun of British food, it has contributed a, an enormous variety of really excellent pies of the savory variety. You know, the steak and kidney pie, the various pasties and the small hand pies and stuff like that. Like, England does those as good as anybody. And they've got a pretty wide variety of them. And so this is kind of a descendant of the English savory pie. You know, in the U.S., like nowadays, 
we pretty much always think of pies as sweet, as dessert dishes. And there are very many savory pies that are still popular. There's the quiche is one of them, and the chicken pot pie is the other. And chicken and dumplings is kind of related to chicken pot pie in my estimation. It's typically just topped with biscuit dough instead of pie dough. Well, not always. There's a lot of different ways of making dumplings. But today we are making chicken pot pie, which is a single crust pie with the crust on the top, made in a pot, hence the name, with chicken, hence the name. <laughs> um, basically like a really thick sort of chicken stew topped with a pie dough. And since this is the show about lard, because I have enormous amounts of lard in my refrigerator, we're going to make this pie dough out of lard, which is an awesome way to make especially a savory pie dough. Lard itself, unless you get leaf lard, which is the, the lard that's around the kidneys. If you've ever been involved in butchering a pig, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Because the leaf, leaf lard is the ideal pie crust lard. It's around the kidneys. It's extremely saturated. It's really hard, even if you render it. If you render it and keep it, keep it separate and, uh, and then render that out, like it's much more saturated than even like the really high quality back fat and stuff. So it actually does make the very, very best pie crusts but I just have this is regular lard not regular store lard this is from a local pig but it's uh it's just ordinary fat so I have added 300 grams of flour and I can't <laughs> we used to be able to get pastry flour in this town and now it's really hard to get pastry flour so this is just regular all-purpose flour which is totally fine it's just not going to be quite as tender a crust uh 300 grams of all-purpose flour 200 grams of lard that I cut in with a pastry cutter. Usually in these in these uh, shows where we make pie dough, I use the uh, food processor, and we do the routine where you mat pulse where you pulse about a third of the the flour with with all of the fat to get kind of a paste, and then you well you 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 process that really thoroughly to get a really well blended paste, and then you pulse in the rest of the flour and then add just enough water to make it you know stick together. But today, since not everybody has a food processor, I thought I would just make it with a standard old pastry blender. They're cheap. You can pick them up at any home store. Some places will say that you can use a fork <laughs> to cut in flour into, or to cut in fat into flour. I've personally never had very much luck with that. It takes forever. And part of what you want to do is, is you want to have some speed here. But pastry blender, which is just a handle with a bunch of... Don't get the kind with the wires, though. The kind with the wires suck. Make sure you get the kind with the, the flat sort of tines because they're a lot easier to push. The kind with the wires, you can't get enough force on those. I hate the wire kind. <laughs> I got this uh, three parts flour to two parts lard, and it's got a really nice savory smell. I have used regular straight lard making uh, sweet pie doughs, and it works, but... I can see how a lot of people wouldn't necessarily like it because there is a distinctly even like this is wet rendered lard, which is made by simmering your cut up fat. You cut up your fat as small as you can cut it up and you simmer it in water for a long time. It takes it takes several hours to render lard until what you're left with is little tiny sort of slightly brown cracklins that you can then throw into some hotter fat, crisp them up, and then you've got cracklins. And then you get a bunch of really nice pure white lard that is magnificent for especially frying, but also for all sorts of other things, which we are exploring today. I'm just going to add some water. It's going to be around 100 grams of water. 
I don't just I don't like to just add the hundred grams right off the bat because you never really know what you're gonna end up with as far as uh, the water. You don't want to have too much water. You just want your dough to just hold together and just be workable because you don't know in advance the, the water content of your flour. It's really hard to judge how much water to start with. But right about three, two, one flour to lard to water is pretty good. So that's gonna be pretty close to what we want here. Now you'll notice, uh, and I've always noticed this, that the lard, lard tends to incorporate itself a little better into the fat than, or into the flour than butter does. Butter typically takes a little longer to work and it leaves distinct and sort of definite chunks, um, which is good, but it also makes it a little more challenging to work. I think lard pastry doughs are as flaky and as delicious as a butter pastry, but they're a little easier to work. Butter pastry doughs, to me, always tend to be a little bit challenging. That was quick. I used about 85 grams of water there. And now I have a nice workable dough. And now I'm going to simply let this dough rest while I make the sauce chicken pie part of the, or the chicken pot part of the chicken pot pie. And I'm gonna let this rest. This will probably take an hour, but the further in advance you can make this, you know, if you can make this the day before, that's great. That way the, the dough is easier to work. The gluten gets really relaxed. Everything's super nice, but this is a really beautiful pie dough. And once this sits in the refrigerator for a few minutes, for an hour or so, uh, it's gonna turn out to be really nice, really easy to work and have a, a, a deep, kind of savory richness that's gonna go really nice with this pie. And the pot pie is also a fabulous vehicle for pretty much anything. <laughs> I've made it with rabbit. It's really good with rabbit. Beef, moose, caribou, pretty much anything. You can make, you can make fi fish pies too, but we're not gonna be doing that because it's a slightly different technique because you, you have to handle the fish a little differently. So we're not gonna make a fish pie today. I'm chopping some mushrooms and the mushrooms I roasted in the oven for a little while, just to brown them a little and drive off some of the moisture. I roasted them while I had my chicken carcass also roasting because this, this is gonna be a brown chicken stock. And most of the time I actually don't go to the trouble of roasting my chicken stocks, mostly because a lot of times it really doesn't make, a, it, well, it does, it makes a difference, but a lot of times I actually prefer the sort of cleaner and lighter flavor that you get with uh, unroasted chicken. But in this case, I kind of wanted a little more browning. I wanted a little more depth. So I roasted my chicken uh, carcass. I stripped all the meat. I boned the chicken out, which that meat is going to go into the actual, uh, the stew part of the pot pie. And then I roasted the, the carcass for with the skin, of course, because the skin contributes tons of flavor, tons of collagen. Uh, I roasted that for eh, probably 45 minutes, 50 minutes, something like that, just enough to get it kind of brown um, on the on, you know on the outer bits. And now the bubbling you hear is my chicken carcass simmering away in some water to make stock. And the chicken carcass is now starting to break down pretty well. It's been going for probably an hour, and I'm gonna let the, I'm gonna let it go for a little while longer, at least at least another hour, I think. Which coincidentally lines up really well with the uh, with the time for 
my Pido to rest. But just because the complete stock won't be done for another 45 minutes to an hour, I'll still be able to use some of this thanks to the magic of a filter and a ladle so that I'm not held up. All right, so the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna cut an onion because I'm gonna make a roux, but this is not, I know you're probably getting sick of me saying that. This is not a dark Cajun roux, but it's not gonna be a blonde roux either, which I've made a bunch of those on the show. This will be the halfway point. This is gonna be a brown roux, not a dark roux, a brown roux. And brown roux have the advantage that you can make them with butter. So you get that nice butter flavor. I could make this with lard too, but I'm not gonna overdose on lard here. That'll come when it's time to fry things. And in general, I do like kind of the cleaner taste of butter in a roux like this, where, you know, the flavor of the fat, where, where the flavor of the flour isn't so dominant that you almost kind of need sort of a heavier fat to stand up with it, which is why lard is so awesome in dark roux. This, because we're not going as hot, we're not gonna burn the butter, we're just gonna get it dark. We're just gonna get it kind of brown. And it's gonna be a really nice flavor base. It's gonna be a really nice base for this, uh, this chicken pot pie. And we're just gonna build this thing kind of as we're going, going because you know, the, the nice thing about cooking this time of year is like stuff in the garden's coming in. So I'm gonna go out and check. I'm probably gonna throw a leak in here. I'm gonna go outside and just kind of wander around. And I have some potatoes here that I gotta use up. They're store potatoes, but my potatoes are pretty close to being done, but I'm gonna use store potatoes in here. And I gotta go out and get some garlic and get some other stuff. So let's go see what is in the garden. I'm hoping, I'm hoping some of my favas are ready. They, they're getting close. I took a risk because uh, I took a little bit of a risk because, ooh, got a little rain. You know, traditionally, like, most, most of the time, chicken pot pie will have some peas in it. And I looked at the peas at the store, the frozen peas, and I was like, yeah, you know, that'd be good, but maybe I got some favas that are ready. Because if I got some favas, I'd rather use those. Let's see what we got here. Everything was kind of, it was a weird year. My garden didn't do very well. Nothing's really done anything this year, you know? So I got some favas, a few of them. Yeah, this is, the last two years I've had much better crops. This year is pretty slim pickings, and they're not very big either. So I'm gonna use them still. I'm just gonna have to use them like green beans, basically. So, because when they're super, super young like this, you can still eat the pod. You know, the beans themselves are, are really small, but you can snip the ends and you can still use the pod. So we're gonna do that. It's gonna be tasty. Regardless, just kind of a cap or two. What is Ben? Kind of a disappointing year in a lot of ways, at least from my perspective. But that happens, and so, man, this, <laughs> lots of flowers, not too many beans. It looks like, I don't know why, you know, this whole year was just, just like this. Things didn't do, but that's okay, because here on Check the Pantry, the rule is expect the unexpected. If your dish doesn't turn out the way you thought it was going to, maybe it'll turn out better. And if your dish didn't turn out better, at least you learned something. Like, check your fava beans before you decide not to buy any peas at the store. Yeah, I'm not, this, this might be the only crop I get this year. Pretty, pretty grim out here. Everything, you know, it was, a cold, it was kind of a cold summer. Stuff just, stuff just wasn't happy. 
That's just how it goes sometimes. We got enough. We got enough to throw in there and be tasty, which sometimes, sometimes that's what you get. If nothing else, these fava beans will make some nice nitrogen in that bed next year. But I got some leeks, which are not as big as they were last year, but they're tasty because I've been eating a few of them. They're just kind of small. And I got some garlic, same deal. Very tasty, not very big. Everything was so late this year. That was a lot of it. Oh, that's right, I got these fobbas over here. Ooh, these look nicer. Forgot I planted, I planted some over by the compost pile. Those look pretty good. Those look great, actually. These are by far the best ones. I'm gonna actually get some usable fava bean flavor out of this anyway. Look at that. Even that's pretty sad. <laughs> well, that's how she goes. It's a good thing I decided I wasn't gonna do a show on fobbas this year. Let's run through the herb garden real quick, uh, which is kind of a disaster this year too. We got, we got some oregano. A little oregano I think would be nice. I don't need any dill. All right, well, you know, it is what it is. I know cooking shows are supposed to be about bounty and amazing harvests. Looks perfect. And they go out to their fantastic garden and there's food everywhere and little dancing chickens. But the reality of gardens is it every year, every year it's not like that. Some years it is. Some years it is, and some years you got a sad little bunch of fava beans that you just gotta try to do something with. I'll peel a little piece of garlic. I gotta clean my leek too. Kind of the number one tasks at the moment. Cut off the garlic roots, get rid of the outside nasty dirty layers. And then if you've never used fresh garlic, I mean, aside from it really tasting quite amazing, the skin's not completely dry. It's not because it's not cured yet, but there is still kind of a skin on the clove that you do have to, I, well, I'm a smasher. You just smash it down and then you can peel it off and you can, you can see it pretty easy. Fresh garlic is also extremely pungent. Chop that garlic, not super fine. I like it pretty chunky. So I want to get this leek cleaned as well. So it's ready to go. See, we already burned up like 15 minutes at the time that my stock needed to simmer here. 15 more minutes of flavor have gone into that stock so that when I start using it in this pot pie sauce, it'll be 15 minutes more delicious. All right, cutting my leek the way that Jacques Pepin taught me. Not personally, merely via his fabulous shows, where you you go up to where the green starts to turn sort of darker green. And you just gently cut around so that you're only taking off a few of the leaves. You just roll the leek around your knife. And then inside, it'll be pretty, it'll be closer to white where the blade of the knife is. And you just go up another inch or two, however far, to where it starts to get darker green again and you roll the leek around your knife and you just keep going up until it's pretty much just the the, the nasty part of the leek so here we go we've got the main bits the main players in this chicken pot pie have come together so let's make a roux and again this is going to be a brown roux so i'm going to use about a half a stick of butter i think which should get me in the ballpark. 
You know, the nice thing about the pot pie is that we don't, it doesn't have to be sliceable, so it's going to be a sauce. It's going to be a, a nice sauce, but we don't want it to be like a thick, super stodgy sauce. We just want to use enough roux to, to make it nice and thick, but not, you know, gloopy. That's about a quarter cup of butter, and we're going to get about a quarter cup of flour. Slightly more than a quarter cup of flour. Three to two. Kind of your ideal ratio here. It's going to let the butter melt, but I don't want the butter to brown at this point. I'm not trying to make brown butter and then add the flour. I want the flour to brown along with the butter. So I'm just getting to the butter to the point where it's going to be melted. And maybe starting to kind of simmer a little bit. I'm doing this over kind of medium, medium high heat. I got a little foaming happening, which is good. So I'm going to add my flour, grab my whisk, whisk that in. And this is this makes a pretty nice, pretty thick paste too, because this is a this is a higher ratio of flour to to fat than I do in my in my dark Cajun roux, because those because we're taking them so much hotter, you run a lot more risk of uh, chunks of the roux sticking together or sticking to the the bottom of the pan and burning. If it's too solid, if it's as solid as you want for a roux for, one, for something like this, like a velouté or a bechamel, those, those can be a little more solid because we're not going to take them as far, but the, the darker roux need to be liquid or slightly liquid. I whisked in the flour at the beginning to remove lumps. Now I'm going to turn this down just a little bit and I'm just going to stir until this is the color that I want it to be. And what I want it to be is kind of looking at wet sand for this one. If you, if you push it too much past that, I mean, you can generally get one of these into like peanut butter before it starts to become an issue, but you don't want to go too much past that. What I want is just a really nice dark kind of brown butter and flour flavor that'll sit right at the bottom of this. It takes a few minutes. It's usually somewhere between five and 10 minutes, depending on how hot you do it, how fast you do it, depending on your pan. Now, as you cook a roux like this too, it does break down some of the flour's thickening ability. So we're gonna take this a little darker. And so it's gonna be a little bit thinner. You know, if we, if we, if we just made a blonde roux and used the same amount of liquid, the sauce would be considerably thicker than it's gonna be with this amount of darker roux and the same amount of liquid. This is going to be a little bit thinner, but that's okay because, again, pot pie. Plus, this uh, this chicken stock should be nice and nice and gelatinous. Alright, we're starting to get there. Yeah, you just get kind of a, there's a few little streaks of kind of sandy brown showing up. Starting to get a little bit of a nutty scent. So, we're getting pretty close here. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, beautiful. Just looking for, <laughs> they, these are called brown roux, but you, they, 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 they really don't get that brown. You know, particularly if you're used to making Cajun roux. But actually this kind of roux, this is the, the style of roux that you would typically use to make like an etouffee. Those usually don't get brown roux, they're the dark brown roux. So now we're just kind of a light, kind of wet sand looking, it's very much like a beach. So I'm gonna go ahead and do my turn off the burner real quick just to quickly carry away any residual heat. Drop in my onions, 
Durham. Oh yeah. So let's turn my burner back on. And I'm just gonna do what we always do in this situation. Sweat the onions until they're translucent. The nice thing about this though is it's gonna take a few minutes, which means that our chicken stock is gonna be like 10 minutes more delicious by the end of it. So I'm gonna let that happen and we'll be back once these onions are nice and sweaty. All right, a few minutes later, probably, I don't know, 10 minutes, eight minutes later, onions are nice and translucent. The roux has darkened slightly, not very much. Go ahead and drop my leeks in here. I'll let them start to leak some flavor. So I'm gonna take out my pot from my pot pie. In this case, my pot is really just gonna be a pan. Um, <laughs> a Pyrex pan, in fact. Um, just a regular glass, I think this is an eight by eight baking dish. And I'm gonna start preparing my pot. It doesn't really need much preparation, but I do need to get a couple things ready. So this being sort of a fall dish. Oh, I have a carrot. You know, sometimes you get lucky. I was kind of, I was kind of going, man, I wish I had a carrot. And lo and behold, in the back of my refrigerator, there is a carrot. So carrot is classic. It's not gonna be a full mirepoix because I don't have any, don't have any celery, but that's okay. This is kind of the essence of this sort of winter cooking. Do I have it? Well, let's put it in in a way that showcases it. Do I not have it? Well, maybe next time. You can tell I'm still mad about the fathers. <laughs> it's almost as, almost as bad as the time I opened up the duck for this show thinking I was gonna make duck liver pate. Lo and behold, that particular duck didn't come with a liver. Well, I mean, it came with a liver, but liver didn't make it to me. Somebody else got that liver. The thing about a menu is that it's never actually written until it's on the table. All right, let's let these carrots simmer down a little. Join together with the leeks and the onions. And now I'm gonna start getting ready to the other ingredients for this here pot pie. My garlic's already minced. My mushrooms are chopped, ready to go. So I'm gonna add, I'm gonna put some potatoes in here. I debated putting the, t the potatoes in here just because it's already getting a pie crust. So it's already gonna have a little starch to it, but you know, potatoes are kind of classic in pot pie. So I'm gonna go ahead and put them in. Diced up, not super large, cause I wanted to cook relatively quick quickly. Cause I'm gonna put the potatoes in the bottom of the pan, which is what I'm doing right now. And they're gonna go into the oven raw. I'm just throwing them in the pan. I'll stir them in once I actually put the, the sauce in the pan. They're gonna go in the oven raw cause they'll be kind of small. And the, the pie itself, the, the pie crust is gonna take probably 25 minutes to really start to brown. So that is a time in which everything in the actual pie should be cooking to be done at the optimal time. So that we don't have completely mushy potatoes. We're gonna start the potatoes raw since the sauce is going to go on top of them boiling hot and then they're going to spend another half hour or so possibly a little more in the oven and since they're cut pretty small to begin with i have no doubt that at the end of this i'll have perfectly cooked potatoes Let's throw a little salt on there this is 
These are really small potatoes too. These are like little baby new potatoes. Probably using five of them. These are pretty nice. They're got a nice creamy texture. Let's go ahead and add our garlic. Again, a little sprinkle of salt. Not very much, just a little bit. And we'll add our mushrooms, which are, as I mentioned, already roasted in the oven because brown mushrooms are better than non-brown mushrooms in all situations. All right, I'm grabbing a ladle and I'm grabbing a strainer because we are going to make the first chicken stock addition to this because I want to pre-cook my the, the dark meat, my chicken thighs. I want to pre-cook those a little bit so that they're already mostly cooked, but they'll have a little time to sort of break down a little in the in the pie itself as the pie itself cooks. And I will add my cut up white meat for the chicken just before I put the pie in the oven. Again, so that the white meat of the chicken doesn't overcook and we don't get dry, sort of nasty white meat. And I'm leaving my chicken fairly large. I don't want it to be at least the, or the dark meat chicken, fairly, fairly large. So there's gonna be an interesting texture with that. It'll fall apart a little as it cooks in the, uh, in the sauce here. Just big irregular chunks of thigh and leg drumstick. Get all of that, drop all that out. So this is still, this is really, really thick right now. I'm gonna go ahead and add a little bit more stock, but not a ton. So just cause I cleared out quite a bit of the, uh, the chicken stock out of the, out of the pot, I'm just gonna add a little bit more water. I'm gonna let the stock finish simmering. And now I'm just gonna let this uh, very thick pot pie base with the mushrooms and the dark meat chicken now cook. I'm gonna give it about 10 or 15 minutes just to get the chicken well on its way and let this uh, let this last bit of the stock come together. And while that's going on, I'm going to cut up my chicken breasts and sprinkle those in with the potatoes so that they'll be nice and ready when this whole thing is ready to go in. So we'll be back in just a little bit to start assembling this beast, which is smelling very tasty and looking very tasty. And I'm very excited about it. So one thing that I like to do on this show is to solve problems. And not just your problems, my problems. And one of the problems that I have at least a few times a year is that I want to make fish and chips and I got the fish and the fish is no problem, but I don't have any frozen French fries and I don't want to take the time because <laughs> sometimes, you know, you just, you got a half an hour to get dinner on the table and you don't want to sit around trying to double fry French fries, but you can't single fry them because they're not good enough. You know what I mean? Like it's one of those things where it's hard to do if you can't do it sort of right. I mean, the actual solution to this is just keep tater tots around because tater tots are the best. But since this show is about lard and since we're all nerdy and home cookie and stuff, I'm going to go ahead and make some French fries from scratch. And I'm actually going to, we're going to do a little science here because even though I've used this particular method that I'm about to use a lot, I've never actually done it side to side 
with, uh, with doing a double fry. So I've just piled in a bunch of lard into a wok, my deep fryer of choice. And these are, I just hand cut these. They're not very, they're not super thin, but they're not super thick either. And I've dumped them in something that seems really weird. And you'll be like, what, did you, what are you even doing? Like my lard's not even melted. And I just put them in because it turns out that you can get about 95, maybe 90% of the way there. Again, this is what I'm testing today because I've never actually tried them side by side. But you can get some pretty quality French fries if you start your potatoes in cold oil and let them cook until they hit basically between 325 and 350. And they will be shockingly delicious and uh, texturally very solid French fries, you know? Like they actually, they don't have that kind of nasty sort of soft, waxy, gross quality that, that single fried potatoes where you just drop them into, you know, 325 degree oil or whatever right off the bat. They don't have that quality. They actually have some of the character of a double fried French fry, but you don't have to double fry them. They don't require as much fussing around. The disadvantage, the biggest disadvantage of this method um, is that you can only really do one batch. You know, so if you're uh, if you're making a bunch of French fries, you got a lot of people. This is a decidedly inferior method. In fact, you can't even really do it. But if you're just making a batch of fries for one or two or maybe even three people, you can pull it off in a in a reasonable amount of oil with this method. It heats up pretty quick. I'm on high heat here, and we're at 190 degrees. So these potatoes, these are just regular, you know, russet potatoes just hand cut them to a nice thickness. They're not steak fries, they're not shoestring potatoes, they're not McDonald's fries. They're just a solid hand cut French fry. And I, I rinsed them off, of course. You always gotta rinse your, your potatoes for French fries to get all the free excess starch off them. They brown better. So this oil that I'm using, or this lard that I'm using is about half, well, it's actually more than half. It's probably two thirds of my sort of regular, already used lard for deep frying that I keep in the fridge. And then I have, I had a little bit of extra fresh lard that I added to it. Restaurant fry cooks know this very well. Super fresh oil that you've never used for anything else. Super fresh fat is actually not that, not as good for frying as fat that's had some stuff browning in it. And I'm not sure exactly why that is, but it has to do with, you know, the exact nature of the, the structure, the molecular structure of the fat. If it's been heated and if it's had things frying in it, and you'll see like the oil itself will get darker. Things in the fat will get a darker, nicer color. Now at a certain point, you know, you've, you've used too much of it and it starts to break down. It starts to oxidize really easy and it starts to get rancid. And at that point you got to chuck it. Can't use, reuse your fat too many times, but it's actually an advantage to, to reuse it. You can get, you can get a fair amount of use out of it. So even though, you know, you might look at deep frying in your home kitchen as like, oh my God, it's really wasteful because I'm using all this oil. You just filter out your oil and uh, reuse it. You are good to go. So this is kind of an interesting method because what happens is, and what we're, what's going on right now is that the oil itself is about two, well, it's at 227 right now on my thermometer. Right now, the water is cooking out of the outside of the, the potatoes. The outside of the potatoes are drying out. The inside of the potatoes are cooking. And this is kind of the, the trick of how this works is that it thoroughly cooks the inside of the potatoes while simultaneously drying the outside and driving off the water 
the outside gets hard enough, then the inside starts to steam out a little bit and, and puff and get that sort of characteristic kind of uh, soft texture on the inside. By the time most of the water is gone from the outside and it's not bubbling near as much, then it starts to brown. So right now, what are we at here? We're at 250, still got lots and lots of bubbles. And I'm really curious to see what happens when I take the second potato and double fry it in the traditional manner. It smells freaking fantastic. Nothing like the aroma of a big pot of lard. So good. They're starting to look good. They're at 263 right now. And they're legitimately looking, they got kind of a nice exterior. Starting to get a little puffy, in fact. Some nice little puffiness on the outside. Like a, uh, like a really quality French fry. The other nice thing about this method is that you don't have to worry so much about temperature because pretty much as soon as they look done and taste done, then they are done. Um, you do have to be a little bit careful if you're double frying because you want to make sure that you're not starting uh, the first fry too hot and you don't want to start the second fry either too hot or too cool. So you do have to be kind of aware of what the temperature is. With this method, it doesn't matter. You just turn it on, turn it up, let it go, and then when they're brown, they're done. Pull them out, you eat. And they're starting to look very, very tasty. You know, they're, we're at 287 right now. And what they look like now, interestingly enough, is pretty much a French fry that is uh, ready to pull after the single fry. But we're just gonna let them keep going here. Oh man, these are really nice. Now they're a nice golden brown. We're at 321. So they're all floating now as well. And the bubbling is mostly subsided. We've got some nice puffiness, some nice blisters on the outside of some of these. We're at 333 and I've got a nice, they're just a really nice golden brown color. So I'm gonna go ahead and pull these. Those guys are done. Add a little salt. And let's see what we got here. It's a solid fry. It's brown. It's not really, it's not quite as crispy as I think we're gonna get with these uh, double fries. It doesn't quite have that, you know, awesome sort of shattery outside. But it also, it's not soggy like, like a plain sort of single fry will pretty much always be. It doesn't have the structure that I would really love. It's definitely not a McDonald's fry, put it that way. It doesn't have the integrity of, uh, of a really excellent crispy fry, but it's tasty. I'm not gonna say that this would be my favorite French fry ever. Let's just go ahead and get that because I don't want you to make these and be like, oh wow, he was really lying. They're not like the greatest French fries ever. They're not the greatest French fries ever, but they're a solid fry. You could also take them even a little hotter too. You can get these up to, up to as high as, you know, 350 or so without any problem. So we are now dropping just under 300 degrees. I bet these would be, and in fact, I've definitely brought them up higher than 330, which is what I just did. And they do get a little crispier and a little browner if you go a little higher. All right, so turn my heat back on. We are at 292. I'm gonna go ahead the old fashioned way. We'll see what the differences are. See how much we gain. So we drop down as far as 260. I'm gonna let these go until we get up to around 300 or so. My only goal with this is to is to cook them through. And then we'll worry about the browning a little later. Okay, we got a very similar exterior now to where the other ones actually looked 
few degrees warmer. These are kind of wrinkly on the outside, starting to get a little puffy, starting to feel like they're pretty close to being done here. So I'm gonna go ahead and pull them, crank the heat on these bad boys, and let's double fry. I got a real feeling that I was wrong in the beginning and that, that the, it's gonna be a lot less than 90% that the uh, cold oil ones are gonna be better. Okay, so these right now, where are we at here? 317, they're definitely flexible. You know, they still got a little integrity, but they're they're definitely wiggling around a little more than a, than a raw potato would. So I think the cooking is solid. Where are we at here? 325. The full batch of the single fries. See how long those guys are gonna take. So one thing that I noticed for sure is definitely there's a lot more kind of integrity to them. So my temp went down from about 345 down to about 320. These have a really nice color. Feels like the colors may be a little bit more even. I'm really curious to see what the texture textural differences are when these come out. Because the other ones, you know, there was a lot of integrity, but I feel like they could have been a little crispier and a little bit, uh, I wouldn't say they were soggy, but I would definitely say they were not quite as solid as I would like them to be. 325, 327, I'm going to pull these once they hit 330 again. So they'll have had roughly the same final temp as uh, the single fry. So I feel like we'll get a little, a little bit more, you know, if I, took, if I took these all the way up so they got a little darker, maybe that wouldn't be such a fair test. So these hit just hit 333 which is about when I pulled the other ones. So let's pull these two and let's see what happens. Let's see if there's any real difference. Gotta add a little salt. So even before I'm biting into them, they feel like they're firmer with more integrity, for sure. There's like no kind of sogginess right now at all. The outside is distinctly sort of crispy feeling. So give these a second to cool down, they're pretty hot. The crispiness is definitely superior. There is much more of a distinct difference between the outside, which is kind of a little bit crispy and a little bit, uh, you can kind of feel the exterior of the potato versus the inside, which is distinctly kind of fluffy tasting. It's a lot better. I mean, it's definitely, well, these aren't even the best French fries I've ever made, you know? I didn't go in the freezer. I didn't really have a drying step where I kind of dried the outside. I didn't, put any extra corn or potato starch on the outside to sort of give them a little crispiness boost, but they're definitely better. I think the other, the, 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 the started in the cold oil is that they're certainly acceptable. They're better than the sort of floppy pale yellow kind of gross fries that, that happen if you just try to fry them one time or the, or the really dark sort of burned and over overcooked fry. If you, if you try to cook them in uh, do a single fry when the oil's too hot or the pale stuff that that you get when when the oil's not hot enough but they're not as good as the double fry for sure i think they're they're clearly clearly inferior but they do solve a problem which is what to do when you don't want to go through all the rigmarole of making excellent <laughs> double fried french fries but as always the simplest solution is just to keep a bag of tater tots in the in the freezer because tater tots cooked in lard. So just a couple more chores to do here before we can start to assemble this thing. Be 
because I just strained my stock out. Looks like I'm gonna have just enough to make a nice properly thickened sauce. If it needs to be thinned out a little bit, I can always add a little bit of water. You know, you can use wine or something else too. I just cracked an egg into a cup, adding a pinch of salt. And this will be for my egg wash for the top of my pastry, since we're getting pretty close here. Stir that up. I always like to add a little bit of water to my egg wash. I feel like they're always too, they're just a little too thick. They don't uh, brush on very well if you don't add a little bit of water. Sauce is actually a really nice consistency right now, but I do want it to be a little bit thinner. It's gonna thicken up too with the potato starch. So I'm gonna add last bit of my stock. Oh yeah, this is gonna be perfect. It's just a really nice, really silky sauce. It's always a good idea with any of these uh, flour roux-based sauces like this, especially the ones where you're actually using a pretty significant percentage of roux and you do want it to thicken uh, and be like a thicker, thicker sauce. It's a really good idea to let them simmer for, or let them cook for at least a half hour or so. They wind up getting a little, they, they become a little smoother that way, like the, the starches fully hydrate, just sort of interlink together and make a nice matrix the longer it cooks. Typically, you're just going to get a little bit smoother, a little bit silkier mouthfeel. That was actually some of the reasons why, particularly the brown sauces um, in classical French cooking, would just, once they were made, you know, and all the, everything was assembled, they would just simmer and skim for a long, long time. And that was to get rid of the little protein layer and let the starch molecules sort of fully interlink to make the, the maximum structure to the sauce. So while we were waiting on the sauce to cook a little longer, I also added a bay leaf and some oregano and some red pepper flakes. Not a whole lot, but a few. Just the scent alone is really nice right now. I'm gonna give it a quick taste before I decide to call it done, see if it needs anything else. There's a couple of things I was thinking about putting in here, but I'm not really sure. Mm, that's nice. That's really nice. It's just, it's very chickeny. You know, and I like that. It's a chicken pot pie. It does, you don't need to, or I don't need to add a bunch of crazy flavors to it. I just want it to, to be intensely chickeny and to really feel like, oh man, this is this is the essence of chicken. And it's winter, you know, you want it to be kind of kind of on the straightforward side and just like, oh, kind of hearty. So I'm gonna call that happy and good. I'm going to give, so I got in my pan that's raw, all the stuff that's raw right now, which are the, the chicken breasts cut up into chunks, the potatoes cut up into small chunks, and I threw, on, threw in my, <laughs> my rather meager collection of fava beans into there as well, and uh, some oregano. And I'll just give it an, another extra little bump of interestingness. And I'm gonna go ahead and pour this, stir it all together, pour in a little bit more. I'm probably gonna have a little too much, I think, but that's okay. I want it to be pretty full because I want my pie dough to sit right on top of this. Oh, it's actually going to be just right. Just right. Just exactly fills the, fills my eight by eight. So now I'm going to turn the oven on to 400. And right now, while I'm thinking about it, I'm going to grab a half sheet pan, throw it, on the bottom rack because I will guarantee you that this is gonna bubble over. I 
guarantee it. I guarantee that this is gonna bubble over because it's very full, it's quite saucy, it's gonna make some bubbles. So now the only thing that I have left to do to finish my chicken pot pie is to roll out my pie dough, brush on my egg wash and throw it in. So I'm gonna grab my rolling pin, my lovely tapered rolling pin and grab my pie dough. And this amount of pie dough is definitely a substantial amount, much more than I'm going to need today. I will need probably a third of that, which is good because now I have more dough to make more pies. Probably freeze that. Okay, scatter a little flour on my tiny little area where I can mix, which is extremely tiny. I don't need a large kitchen to do this, although I'm not gonna lie. Counter space, <laughs> at least more than 18 inches of counter space. Very, very lovely luxury. All right, and I'm just gonna roll this out into a square, a rough square, roughly eight by eight. Gently roll it onto my pin, my beautiful lard pie crust. Roll it onto my pin, roll it out over the top of my pot pie. Oh, look at that, so lovely. I'm gonna tuck in the corners here, but still try to get it kind of slightly hanging over the, the sides of the, crimp it on the sides of the, of the pot. So that'll help to seal it, eliminate at least a little bit of the bubbling over, but I have never made a pot pie that did not bubble over. In fact, bubbling over to me is kind of part of the charm of the pot pie. But tuck it in, crimp it, make it look nice, or as nice as you can get it. As I have mentioned before on the show, <laughs> I make very tasty pies, but I do not make very attractive pies. This is this is actually one of the things where I think if I had a little bit more room, um, it might be a little simpler because I always wind up making the pie dough right next to the preheating oven, which is rolling out the pie dough right next to the preheating oven, which is not the ideal scenario to roll out a pie dough in. But you know, you just do what you can do in this world. So, now that I've got it kind of how I want it, go ahead and put some egg wash. Nice, generous egg wash. And this lovely chicken pot pie, now that the oven is just about preheated, is just about ready to go. I just have to cut some vents. And we are going to have a bubbly and very delicious pot pie that I'm gonna check on in a half hour and see how we're doing. Might take a little bit longer, just until the crust is nice and brown. That's gonna get us there. So I'll be back when that happens. One of the drawbacks of <laughs> producing your own cooking show in your own kitchen is that sometimes in the time when you put your dish in the oven and then the 45 minutes later when it's actually done and you're ready to pull it out, you sort of forget that you're recording a show for the radio <laughs> that uh, you know some some number of people that you don't know some of whom live in places far away I know this because I received postcards from as far away from as uh, West Virginia you forget that you're recording you know for 
for those people and you <laughs> and you start running your dishwasher right before you're supposed to record so please forgive me for the running dishwasher fortunately the really noisy cycle i think just finished so before the next noisy cycle starts i think we can finish this uh this pot pie because it's been about 45 minutes and i am pretty sure this is going to be ready when i checked it when i checked it 10 minutes ago or so it was looking pretty good and now we're gonna take it out and look and see and oh yes oh it is beautiful a little bubbling but not too bad i've certainly had much worse bubbling from my pot pies bubbling contained to the sheet the crust is a lovely brown and it looks really magnificent and it also it smells really good too i'm very excited now i'm even more excited than i was when i conceived of making this pot pie because now it's actually ready to be eaten it is well <laughs> there's the noisy cycle of the dishwasher so rather than have to make you sit through the noisy cycle of the dishwasher i'm just gonna go serve this pot pie up because it's delicious but uh man this is such a great dish and it's so much better when you make it yourself even though it is very convenient when it's a dollar fifty from the frozen aisle chicken pot pie now i'm hungry Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Kotwar Ebane. This is the ninth episode of the summer 2021 season of Check the Pantry.